Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who binge on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Ashawn Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, where we talk about historical films and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Listen to past episodes and sign up for our newsletter on our webpage at michonnebostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters to stay up to date on new episodes and bonus content. In this podcast, our focus is on the Baz Luhrmann film, Elvis. We're talking with Gail Wald, author of Shout, Sister, Shout, the untold story of rock and roll trailblazer, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Our conversation extends to Black musicians and music traditions that shaped Elvis Presley's music and how that aspect of Elvis's story is dramatized in this 2022 biopic that is nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and Best Actor in a Leading Role for Austin Butler, who plays Elvis Presley. In Elvis, Elvis Presley's story is told through the prism of the iconic rock and roller's relationship with his dubious manager, Colonel Tom Parker, played by Tom Hanks. Narrated by Colonel Parker, the film delves into the complex dynamic between the two men, spanning over 20 years, from Presley's rise to fame to his stardom. Set against the backdrop of the evolving cultural and social landscape in America from the 1950s through the late 1960s. The film also highlights Elvis's relationship with black musicians and music traditions from the gospel revivals of his childhood to the Beale Street blues of Memphis, as well as his admiration for musicians like B.B. King. These musicians not only shape Elvis's music, but the future of rock and roll. But like the lyrics in the 1969 Elvis Presley song, Suspicious Minds, Elvis is caught in Colonel Parker's marketing trap and can't walk out, not even with the support of his wife, Priscilla Presley, played by Olivia de Jong, whom Parker sees as his chief competition for influence over Elvis. We rarely give a critique of a film in our podcast, but we feel it necessary to say this, that despite our reservations about the filmmaker's choice to tell the Elvis story from the point of view of Colonel Parker, Tequina and I agree that actor Austin Butler brought sensitivity, depth, and nuance to the role of Elvis. Butler does not create an Elvis caricature. He is not an Elvis impersonator. Austin Butler took artistic risks to give Elvis charisma humility, and vulnerability, making him human. We begin our conversation with Gail Wald, author of Shout, Sister, Shout, the untold story of rock and roll trailblazer Sister Rosetta Tharp, which is being released in a revised second edition from Beacon Press. Wald's book was the basis of the 2011 BBC documentary Godmother of Rock, 
and has been adapted as a musical, Shout, Sister, Shout, with book by Cheryl L. West, opening in March 2023 at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Wald's other books include It's Been Beautiful, Soul and Black Power Television from Duke University Press, about the groundbreaking public television program produced by Ellis Hazlett. She is currently working on a biography of the First Lady of Children's Music, Ella Jenkins, titled This is Rhythm. Gail Wald has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and she is Professor of American Studies at George Washington University. Welcome, Gail, to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Tell us how you got interested in studying, writing, and teaching courses about American popular culture, and specifically African-American music culture and literature. What keeps you curious? Well, I um, studied my P. I have a PhD in English, and I ended up concentrating on African-American literature. There's a long history behind that, including that I happened to be at Princeton at a really, um, really incredibly germinal moment, surrounded by incredible mentors and teachers. I could go, I could cite them, that would take me a while. Um, And I think I, you know, the root of this is I grew up as a kid, really curious about the things that people didn't want to talk about. I wanted to know why people didn't talk about things. And so I think growing up as a white kid in Philadelphia and then in the suburbs, I was always particularly curious about why people did or didn't want to talk about issues of race that seemed to me right there. And so I think that was part of my curiosity, you know, as an outsider um, going in. But I also really feel very strongly that African-American culture is American culture that all Americans need to know about it. And so that keeps me invested as well. I became interested in popular music, partly it was something that I brought from um, my childhood and then got into it. It wasn't something that you could study, you could imagine doing scholarship on when I was in graduate school and kind of came into it in the moment when the field was emerging, because for the first time people were really saying, well, maybe we don't, maybe we don't need to reserve cultural analysis for high literary culture or high musical culture. Maybe we could take some of the tools that we use to analyze texts and think about popular texts. That was happening with film, of course, but it was really um, popular music studies as a field outside of music studies um, adjacent to it was really developing. So those things kind of came together for me. And it's interesting you say you're from Philadelphia because you're near the Philadelphia Sound. And we're going to talk about proximity (laughs) and the Elvis story, too, in this podcast. Yeah, those those kind of cultural encounters that help shape the arts in very interesting ways. So, So Elvis Presley was born and grew up in a poor family in Tupelo, Mississippi in 1935, which was during the Great Depression. What do you see as the impact of Elvis's family background and the role of race in the making of Elvis as the musician? So, of course, like every artist, Elvis is the product of 
a particular time and place. I think where his story is concerned, what's important is understanding the ways that black and white Southerners were differentiated because of white supremacy, because of white power, but at the same time, black and white Southerners shared cultural touchstones, food ways, music, religious practices. Even if um, people went to segregated churches, there were continuities, ways of speaking. Um, and so the history of slavery means that the histories of white and black Southerners are impossible to disentangle at some level. Um, even though they're shaped by these power relations. And I think that's particularly salient in the film in Elvis's love of gospel music. That's kind of one place where it's really clear. And I won't start talking about that scene, but when the white boy Elvis goes into, I guess I am talking about it, goes into a, a revival meeting, there's a way that it's seamless. He's He's already knows something about what's happening, even though it's a kind of initiation into a new space and maybe a new sound, there's a continuity. He's not a total outsider. Yeah. And, you know, you, you touched on the role of Southern culture. Um, and there's a, another way that the film links um, gospel and rhythm and blues in the way that you see Elvis, not only in the revival tent, but also when he's listening, I guess they're looking through the cracks of the juke yeah. joint. Yeah. And you hear this kind of wailing sound in both settings. So could you talk a little bit about how uh, Tennessee and specifically Memphis and Nashville, um, how their impact on gospel, rhythm and blues, country, rock and roll, and soul um, as kind of like centers uh, of energy and creativity uh, that launched, uh, you know, careers and, and their role in the music industry in those genres, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, Memphis and Nashville, it's so interesting, you know, at different sides of the state of Tennessee. And those um, cities are becoming music hubs in the mid early mid 20th century for different kinds of reasons. Nashville, where the country music industry really kind of um, gets set up. Memphis as this um, different kinds of musical crossroads. It's on the Mississippi. Um, it's a, you know, it's, it's this kind of place where, you know, an urban space where you could have heard blues singers, you could have heard spirituals, all the 20th century musics are kind of their country music. I and mean, another thing that I think the film doesn't show us this quite, it, it doesn't, maybe it doesn't have time or it doesn't show us this, the ways that um, African-American Southerners also enjoyed, listened to country music, that Grand Ole Opry was in Nashville was important. Um, to Southerners in, and Northerners, but particularly to Southerners across the board. And you don't really see that so much. The story of country music and its kind of um, influence on rock and roll is a little bit less highlighted, but that's important too, that, you know, that sharing that kind of culture of what we now call country music, what people would have called all different kinds of things. Yeah, I, I remember one, one of my favorite movies is Coal Miner's Daughter. And 
the goal was to get on the Grand Ole Opry. Right. Right. So, you know, I guess um, you're probably answering my next question about your impressions of the film and what was missing. Uh, tell us what you what stood out for you in the film in terms of music traditions, music story, and Elvis's life, as well as the other musicians around him. I have so much to say about this now. And you talking to you gave me the opportunity, excuse to see the movie a second time and to see it on a video where I could pause and think. Um, so I, um, there's a lot of things I like about the movie. And I want to say from the beginning and fun, it's funny because when the movie came out, a friend in Europe who is like a kind of uh, Rosetta Tharp scholar emailed me and said, you know, weren't you so offended? And I shouldn't say this about the Europeans, but the Europeans are really, really strict about, they are like super fans of American music and they don't like anything touched, you know, played with. I, I should say from the very beginning that I don't mind that the film takes liberties. I understand that if you're doing a musical biopic, you know, that the, the director, the actors, they're making choices. You, you know, things have to serve the story of the film. And, you know, so I understand that, you know, cinematic artists make choices and that's okay with me. So I, I don't actually mind some of the inaccuracies don't terribly bother me. Um, if they serve the film well, you know, if they don't serve the film well, that's a different question, but it's really, I think, judging the film on its basis as a film. Um, the story is told through, as as you said, through the relationship between Colonel Parker as an antagonist and the tensions. And so that kind of like, when I watched it this time, I thought, wow, the story of Elvis's influence and his relationship to black musicians kind of is the first hour of the film. And then there's like a whole other hour and a half. And so I kind of noticed that and thought about it. I have to say, upon reflection, I felt a little disappoint, more disappointed Um with the film, I feel like what the the film, I was happy when I saw it the first time because I thought, wow, okay, Baz Luhrmann, this film went out of its way to represent Elvis as an acolyte of not just, you know, of country musicians and of, of black musicians in all genres. Um, and so that was an important gesture, I thought, to remind us that he came from a place right, <laughs> and yes. that he heard things and that he doesn't wasn't just sui generis, like somehow he came from nowhere. Um, and I was recently in Memphis, actually, um, and was at Graceland. And that's kind of the story of Graceland, you know, and it's like kind of a house tour, but it's as though Elvis came from nowhere and influenced everything. Um but I felt like the film, what was lacking in the film for me was that the film never really took an opportunity to give those musicians, even though they're secondary characters, any kind of um, uh, depth outside of, um, uh, of facilitating Elvis's career. And I understand like, this is a movie about Elvis but especially in Elvis's relationship with the B.B. King character, I felt that the film actually lost an opportunity because I felt that the film, it took, the story that it tells of B.B. King is not totally accurate, but even that, it made B.B. King someone who kind of gave Elvis permission without giving us any insight into B.B. King and his own feelings 
about what it would have been like to be a BB King next to an Elvis Presley. And I feel like the film really, that, that was a terrible missed opportunity actually. And it was not a service to the story. So I like the film and I'm happy that, you know, it does certain things, but I think that that was, that's a problem with it for me. So tell us who was B.B. King next to Elvis (laughs) and who was B.B. King to all musicians? So, you know, B.B. King, an important um, blues musician, important electric blues musician. The um, Elvis and B.B. King did know each other and... I don't think, from what I've read, this is my reading of other people's scholarship, you know, they knew each other and they had a kind of acquaintance. Um, Would I, would I, there's this moment in the film where B.B. King, Elvis meets B.B. King at this Beale Street club in Memphis. And Elvis is worried that uh, Colonel Tom Parker is um, pressuring him to become a kind of quote unquote clean up his act. Um, which is partly to do with sexuality and partly to do with um, race, a lot of things, but he's supposed to clean up his act. And Elvis is worrying about this and says, you know, they're going to arrest me. They're going to charge me with, I don't know, he doesn't say exactly, but, you know, lewdness. And there's this moment where the BB King character says, you know, something like, paraphrasing, you know, I'm more likely to get arrested for crossing the street than you are. You're not going to get arrested. You're, You're a star. You're making everyone money. You're this gigantic, you know, entity and um but then he says but you don't have my blessing go ahead and you know conquer the world and um that was a moment where i thought that it could have done a little bit to just it wouldn't have taken much in the film to um like there was the opening when bb king gets to say that thing about he's more likely to get arrested for crossing the street um so that was a moment where I thought, oh, maybe B.B. King was not just there to authorize Elvis's ambitions and give him permission to kind of be, um, to bring this sound out into a world that he gets attention for bringing this sound out into the world, even though it's a black sound. But, as you know, the whole trope, here's a white boy who sounds black, and that's why Colonel Parker imagines he's going to be um, a hit, and he's totally right um, about that. So, um yeah, so B.B. King has his own story, um, but it's not the B.B. King movie, even so. Right. I wanted another line or two, you yeah. know. I wanted B.B. King to be able to say, you know, something. Like, like I, I'm not mad at you as a person, but I want to talk, you know, there's also this other thing. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like imagine this, like, more intimacy between the two. Like, they kind of are, like, brothers, yeah. And even a musical community, um, there is a different kind of dynamic than there is between the musician and fans or the musicians and the Colonel Parkers out there. That is community. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I agree with you. There could have been something to really show the contrast and connection of that relationship. Yeah, there's kind of a camaraderie in the artistic world, even you that you have with your rivals, because you understand what it's like to inhabit that world with all its insecurity, with all of its, um, you know, the hype parts of it and the lows of it. 
Yeah. Um, I love that point because BB King or, or, or whatever character, you know, people, um, artists who, um, are older than Elvis are also learning from Elvis. Right. You know, everyone's yeah. watching him because he had, he does have, you know, he has his own moves and his own way of doing things. And so there is a way that even though he's absorbing and kind of, um, uh, reworking things that others that he's heard sounds that he's already heard in the world, he's putting his own imprint on it. And so there's this way that everyone's listening to each other all the time. Yes. And yeah. they're, they're looking at Elvis for showmanship. They're listening to BB King for music. That's right. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. So we have a number of, um, artists in their own right who appear in the film playing historical artists. One is Yola, who plays Sister Rosetta Tharp in Elvis. And there's an after-hours club scene where um, Sister Rosetta Tharp is singing Strange Things, which you write about in your book, Shout, Sister, Shout. And Strange Things was a popular song of Rosetta Tharp. So tell us about Rosetta Tharp and her impact on American music and what is the significance of the song Strange Things? So Strange Things, so Rosetta Tharp is really the first gospel superstar. Um, She begins recording in the late 1930s and she's really the first, she's not the first gospel artist to make a record. And in fact, Mahalia Jackson as a soloist makes a record before she does, but Mahalia Jackson's 1930s record goes nowhere. Her moment is going to come later. And so Rosetta Tharp kind of is the first person to really become a popular recording artist making gospel music. Um, Strange Things Happening Every Day is from 1944. And Rosetta Tharp recorded it with the Sammy Price trio. Sammy Price was a pianist, leader of a an ensemble and um as opposed to her work earlier in the decade it's moving away from a big band sound it's really a kind of you know whatever you want to call it some people call it you could call it rock and roll you could call it rhythm and blues it's a pared down sound and it has this evocative lyric strange things are happening every day and in the lyrics it's kind of about the different hypocrisies in the world there are people who you know, there are preachers who do wrong. There are, you know, there are strange. So it's kind of calling out a world that's filled with liars and hypocrites. This is a familiar theme, you know, in gospel oh, music. Yes. <laughs> um, the thing that, so Elvis would have heard that song um, 10 years after its heyday. He probably didn't hear it in the 40s. Dewey Phillips, who was a white DJ on a radio station called WDIA that had a vast listenership because the signal went all over the United States, he um, played Black artists and he was playing Rosetta Tharp in the 50s and saying, oh, you know, woohoo, I you know, haven't forgotten this record. And that's how Elvis's generation, including Johnny Cash, including... Um, all of those musicians, Jerry Lee Lewis, would have, they were younger. They would have heard Rosetta Tharp on the radio in the 50s. So it's a kind of cool, you know, like she's being remembered um, by, by a DJ who's a fan. And so her music is still getting out there, even though by, by the time that Elvis 
becomes Elvis, Rosetta Tharp is much less popular than she is at her heyday. You know, Mahalia Jackson is definitely a very different artist, but she's definitely the, the, the solo musician who is, you know, world famous. And, you know, Rosetta Tharp is, I think, seen as a little bit um, uh, old fashioned um, in, by that time. So it's really interesting that there's this like time shift that actually happened. In the film, I really liked Yola's performance and I noticed that the script uses the, the line, strange things happening a few times. So it's, it's kind of, it becomes a little bit of a motif. Um, you know, what strange things are happening in our character's life? Um, what hypocrisies, you know, so I, it's kind of nice um, that it's like, I think the film uses the song as a motif. I have a confirmation to make. She played electric guitar, right? Yes. She went electric. Yes. Okay. And in the in the scene, you know, I when I was watching this time, I thought, oh my god, the amount of the scene setting for clips, the for like images that last literally not even a second. You know, there's there's so much so much visual overload. But I did notice that in that speakeasy scene, or it's the club, it's the Memphis club scene, there's, you see a white electric guitar, which was Rosetta Tharp's kind of signature guitar in the 60s. So it's a little anachronistic, but they stick the electric guitar that she become famous with in the scene. I mean, they were thinking about all these things, clearly. You know, someone was being really thoughtful. Yeah. And we do see Mahalia Jackson show up. Um, she's played by another actor on the television after King's assassination assassination, and they show the funeral. And that was a key moment, uh, even in real time of her singing at Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral in 1968. Yeah. Yeah. And when you mentioned um, the gospel tradition of social commentary or commenting on hypocrisy, it reminded me of, a song by Mahalia Jackson called Let the Church Roll On, when she talks about all the people in the church who won't do right, and what are we going to do? Let the church roll on. So that's a tradition as well, I think, in um, music, which rock and roll kind of inherited as well, you know, that tendency to point out what is uh, fake in our society. One thing the film actually does, although I think it asks the reader, just building on that, it asks the, not the reader, it asks the viewer to do a little too much work. It's too subtle. That scene where Elvis, you know, goes to the tent meeting, young Elvis, and he kind of, you know, slain in the spirit. And, you know, there's this like voice that comes out. The people are shouting in the church. And then you see him on stage kind of doing the same kind of, and I thought the film makes the suggestion, but it's like, you'd have to put it together yourself of like, there's a translation that's going on. I mean, this is really clear in Rosetta Tharp's work when she stops and does a guitar solo and she would look up at the sky and she would play her instrument because at the, a certain point, words can't convey you know, the feeling. And so the guitar takes over and speaks and and speaks in tongues maybe. But you see that with Elvis too, that there's like the, you know, the yelps, the, the different vocalizations that seem, you know, that are beyond in some cases, his lyrics, you know, kind of silly lyrics, not very interesting lyrics. Um, But he's able to like 
muster some of that spirituality in a secular setting, you know, some of that energy. But I kind of feel like that's a profound point. Like, oh, rock and roll actually might have something to do very intimately. It's not just like the sound, but there's something about the the spirit of it, the energy of it might come from that same place. But I feel like I'm kind of putting that on the, like, it it didn't quite give me that. It let me have my interpretation, but it didn't quite make the point. It's just gonna, I have a feeling people are going to go back to the film after they listen to this podcast <laughs> and look for those moments. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, cause that's, yeah. And I also, I have to say, I don't know what you thought. I did feel like the moment where Elvis, the one, it, you know, the, 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 the scene in the church, first of all, they put the church right next to the speakeasy. That's fine. There's some reality that not the church, the, the tent, revival yeah, the revival tent that's yeah. okay. you know it's whatever it's like a fairy tale set so that's fine but what it did kind of went under irk me a little bit i kind of couldn't figure out what i thought about when he enters that tent revival he's the only white kid there and it's like no one notices and i was kind of like and he, he at the end of that scene he's like literally at the middle of the whole thing <laughs> and i thought hmm you know as opposed to just looking in at the speakeasy where he's you know, there's the crack in the wall suggesting this, this distance, but he's like participating, but he's a little bit of in the, in the scene, in the tent revival, he's at the center. (laughs) He's falling out and all the women are catching him or something. I don't know. I thought, I thought that was a little over the top. Well, I was centering him, which um, is often a trope. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that's like, in the the church scene, he gets centered. And I thought, oh, couldn't they put him a little bit on the outside more? You know, right. would have been a little bit. Well, it all depends. And, I, and I'm wondering if um, that was just a connection made that was not made with where Elvis was living. Again, proximity, because I believe at that time in Mississippi, they were living close to African-Americans, that those were their neighbors. Those were his mm-hmm. friends. You get a little bit of that in the yeah. film. And yeah. maybe the people in the tent knew who he was, but that wasn't made very clear. Right. That may have been on the cutting room floor. Yeah, that may be on that, the that level floor. of detail. And with the blues scene, um, with the juke joint, you know, we remember we, we used to have a term adult entertainment, which didn't mean, you know, triple X at the time. But there, there were just some places where kids didn't go, but sometimes they did go because their parents couldn't find a babysitter. Right. I'm one of those kids. I was <laughs> I was in the club with my parents sometimes. And you're better for it. <laughs> Absolutely. You've been enjoying Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast where we talk about historical drama series and films as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Share this podcast. Join our historical drama community by signing up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. Now, back to our podcast conversation. So another um, glimpse the film gives into possibly a black musician making an impression on Elvis is the scene where he gets to see little Richard. Uh And it's at the same time that he's being 
told, you need to tone yourself down. You need to become more clean cut. And little Richard is just like all out. You know, he doesn't hold back anything. So um, talk a little bit about what might have, what possible impact little Richard might have had on Elvis um, as a performer or maybe on rock and roll in, in, in general. <laughs> I, Richard, little Richard has his own documentary now, which I haven't seen. It just came out. Um, like Rosetta Tharp was trying to straddle the sacred and the secular and her skill as a guitarist kind of, um, made her a transgressive figure in terms of gender and sexuality. She was wielding the electric guitar. It was like power, but power coming from a woman, um, et cetera. But little Richard, he just blew the, all the categories away. Right. He was he wasn't trying to straddle. He was kind of exploding. He was an out gay performer. People knew people who were on in the know knew that Tutti Frutti had a like kind of salacious meaning. Um, He was pushing against the gender binary. I think, um, you know, this is another, you know, Pat Boone would cover Little Richard and 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 his versions of Little Richard would be just as popular as Little Richard's. And so this is another like moment where the movie could have like helped make that point a little bit about the um, the privilege that Elvis in, you know inherits. Um, but when Elvis comes out in the terrific scene um, when he's at the country at the fair and he's in like the pink suit with slick back hair and lots of makeup. And in the crowd, there's like someone yells out a homophobic slur, but there's like, is he a man or a woman? What's going on? There's like a kind of channeling of, or a parallel to little Richard, although we don't meet little Richard till later um, in the film. So I think little Richard was another performer. I think everyone was interested in what he was doing. No one quite had, you couldn't, you couldn't copy his energy. Um, but you could try, you know, you could try, try to learn from it. And I, but I do think I agree with what you said at the outset. I think Austin Butler is is great in the role, and particularly, I think the way that he physically inhabits the character. Yes, he's really good, and I loved being able to imagine. You know, I think the film really helped me imagine in a or get close to in a powerful way. what it would have been like to see Elvis move and how thrilling and dangerous that was um, in that moment. And, you know, and for younger kids, kids who couldn't go to the speakeasy, but they could see him on television, right. It was becoming available to to young people. So um, I'm getting away from little Richard, but, you know, Richard was the, (laughs) he, he was the person who smashed all those boundaries. I mean, so did Elvis. In, in his own way. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know about the two of them um, having a relationship. I don't know about that. Yeah. You know, how much they knew each other. I think one thing that comes across in the film is that rock and roll in general was kind of like smashing a lot of conventions and some of the puritanism and uh, even the scene where you see him at the county fair, Elvis performing at the county fair, where the Black kids are on one side, the white kids on the other. And then when Elvis explodes, right. that line just goes away and they're all mishmashed together. You know, it's kind of like one body. You know, one thing is the Elvis character himself 
this is what I thought about, you know, I kept thinking about like, what's the film trying to want me to see in terms of the relationship between Elvis and Colonel Tom. And I, I felt like when I think about the Elvis character, I never, the film never gives me a way of understanding what he imagines that he's doing, what he wants to do in the world. And maybe the film is trying to say that he doesn't know what he wants to do, but he says, you know, in response to stop moving, he says, if I, I can't sing if I don't move. Mm -hmm. And so what's he trying to say about that? Like what, but he's, he doesn't seem to know. He just says, well, I can't do it if I can't move. But I thought that was so interesting. What is what does it mean to say I can't like what's he what's he getting at something in himself or something in his history or, you know, what music means to him? Um, Yeah, I kind of get that because um, when I was studying violin, I used to play just upright and just move the bow, move the fingers. And my teachers used to say, move your body. Mm-hmm. to get a better sound. And I think that's all part of it because you are embracing an instrument like guitars, like a violin, and the music, maybe I'm getting a little woo-woo here, but you yeah. know, the music just takes its, its own it journey. Over. It takes yeah. over and it has yeah. to come from inside of you and go out. And if you're not a musician, you probably don't understand that. Um, and and that that brings me to this question about the colonel, the colonel's relationship, and how for me the colonel represents commerce. Mm-hmm. You know, he talks about the snow job. He's about making the money, and it's almost like he separates Elvis, the voice, from the whole performer, which is the movement as well mm-hmm. as the singing. Um, so, could you talk about? in music um how commerce shapes popular music both in terms of uh how it in some ways may restrict it or try to rein it in as we saw in the film but sometimes it also breaks new ground Mm -hmm. this is like the the million dollar question i guess that's a (laughs) I shouldn't even use that metaphor of the million dollar question, but it no, the is one million million dollar, the one billion dollar question, <laughs> you know, right. Music is commerce. Um, yes. You know, it's a music um, business and, at the, you know, there's Elvis is self-conscious about, he's not just supporting his buying his mother a home. He's like supporting careers of, you know, careers of the masses or there's 20 30 people around him who are being employed so um you know music is definitely about money making i think you know um despite the fact that music is about money making art still happens in the context of money making i mean i guess that's always been the case you know when royalty you know when european royalty were commissioning paintings or commissioning you know um minuets you could still have art even though it was you know, kind of at the behest of um, the king and and his money, or the church and the or past. the church. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, so I feel like you know, music and commerce in a long time embrace. Um, and the thing also, it's interesting that rock and roll emerges at the end of that, the tail end of like the era of American industrial capitalism. You know, at the 
by the end of this, the film in the seventies, by the time of Elvis's death, we're in a very different moment of deindustrialization. Um, but Elvis, and you're thinking about like the importance in, in rock and roll of the car and the highway, you know, going back to Chuck Berry, this idea of freedom in the car and the highway, this is like, to me, there's something about rock and roll that reflects that, um, that moment in the history of American capitalism, um, which had to do with things like the automobile and um, with the freedom of the road. It, and it changes, you know, um, and by the 80s, things look really different. And maybe that's why, we, you know, we see the emergence of hip hop before Elvis dies. You yeah. know, it's happening. It's crazy when you start thinking about, you know, people and he, you know, tragically didn't live very long. But right by the 70s, there's it, it's no longer, you know, the sound that people need or not everyone needs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here, let's talk about um, the sound again. And Mm -hmm. also Elvis and black music and culture, because for, I'm sure many people are familiar with the story about Hound Dog, Mm -hmm. which was a big hit for Elvis released in 1956. The song was written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller and recorded in 1952 by blues and R&B singer Big Mama Thornton. Um, Hound Dog has been used as an example of how Black culture gets appropriated without credit or financial benefit to Black artists. And it also feeds into the story that Elvis stole from Black people for his economic gain and musical benefit. And at the same time, Elvis was also characterized as racist towards Black people, leading to an ambiguous relationship between Elvis and the Black community. So one of the examples, music examples of that, might be found in Fight the Power, the 1989 song by Chuck D for Public Enemy, that includes the lyrics, Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant Leap to me, you see, straight up racist. That sucker was simple and plain. So how would Elvis be viewed in relation to Black music, culture, and race? Was he a bridge between Black music and white audiences to define American popular culture? Or did he only appropriate Black music for his own benefit? So what are those relationships he had to Black music makers and the Black community? I guess it's not useful entirely just to say that Elvis stole. Uh, I think Elvis was a musician who was responding to the world around him in a language of, in a musical language that he had also heard and had, you know, clearly had a great desire for. Um, that's not to say that Elvis doesn't bear some responsibility beyond that. Um, so to me that the, this, this, you know, is it only a story of stealing to me? That's, it's not uh, music is, a, you know, American music is a story of people listening to each other, listening to each other in, you know, in a world defined by inequalities, but still listening to each other. Um, but it is true that, whether he, because he was muzzled or because he didn't give it much thought, 
he, you know, the film makes us see Elvis as like kind of incredibly moved by King and the film like goes out of its way to do that, but it doesn't tell us that Elvis went to the Nixon white house and um, which alienated people. So I think the film wants to secure our sympathy for Elvis as someone who was, you know, who cared about black people through those moments. We don't, I don't know if that is based on anything, the moment where he's watching the funeral or where he finds out that Dr. King died. Um, But the fact that, the fact is that Elvis didn't talk about, um, he didn't do things to elevate the black musicians who were his heroes. Um, And there's kind of no amount of love that could kind of contravene that fact. The fact is that the historical Elvis you know, is silent, a little silent on these issues. And it's really, I'm not an Elvis expert. I mean, he did, I'm not an Elvis expert, but I, there's just not anything there. Um, Big Mama Thornton, you know, he never said something about Big Mama Thornton on TV or in a show that he did. Um, I have to say there's a, a, a short story that Alice Walker wrote from years ago uh it's an old short story at this point it's called 1955 and it kind of imagines a fictional big mama thornton and a fictional elvis they have different names who become friends and the fictional elvis character is always trying to kind of he he keeps buying the fictional Big Mama Thornton all kinds of things that she doesn't necessarily want. He buys her a house and a car and he gives her all this money. And so the story implies that he's like feeding off of her and trying to kind of figure out a way to assuage his feelings about that. Um, both of them are also struggling with their weight in the story. They're both dieting all the time. So, you know, I think that it's, I love that story just for kind of imagining that relationship. But I think, yeah, Elvis, he didn't, he didn't, he was silent on these issues. He put out, and people say, oh, he did In the Ghetto in 1969. I mean, that was kind of late. <laughs> you know? and, and he had the sweet inspiration, Sissy Houston's that's, group as backup singers. That's right. So, you know, not, not totally satisfying. I mean, that's on Elvis the person, I think. But, you know, uh, that's a long answer to the question. Well, nevertheless, let's bring it back to today and these traditions we've talked about um, from Little Richard, B.B. King, Big Mama Thornton, Sister Rosetta Tharp, and so many other musicians. Do you hear any of these traditions in today's popular music, or are we totally just, or, or, or is it a new thing? <laughs> I mean, you could just listen to Beyonce's latest album, which is, you know, a quote unquote dance album. Um, and you could hear all of these traditions, um, you know, in the mix um, at some level. So definitely, definitely, definitely. There's like no way that even sometimes when, um, contemporary, young contemporary artists don't know that they're they're citing they're citing. Um, Beyonce definitely knows that she's citing. So um, yeah, I think you hear it all the time. And uh, you know, Amiri Baraka had a phrase: "The changing same." You know, the the music changes, and there are these threads of continuity. And 
if you look at it from the point of view of the continuities, they're still there, even though the form changes, the styles change, that kind of thing. This has been a really fun conversation and um, we could go on forever, but we're got, we've come to the part in the podcast that we call our lightning round, where we ask our guests a quest, questions that are related to the themes of the podcast, but also the theme of the conversation that we're having. Mm -hmm. So um, this one is about going back in time. If you could go back in time to see a musical performance or meet a musician from the past, what time would that be? And who would be the performing artist? All right, this is not gonna be, I have to say, and I'm, this is like serious. One of the great regrets of my life is that I never saw Prince live. And it almost makes me cry because he was in Washington DC just a couple of years before he passed away. And someone said to me, aren't you going to the show? And I literally, it upsets me to think about it. So I'll put that there. Like that, I am really upset about. If I want to go back further in time, not just my regret, but something I actually couldn't see, <laughs> you know, I'd love to see, I'd love to peek in to see, you know, some of the blues queens on stage for real. Um, we have so many, we have like Bessie Smith on film for like, I don't know, a few minutes. And she's like playing a character, but I would love to, we only know about like the, um, you know, Ma Rainey or a Bessie Smith. We only know about them through like the, the recordings and through the little tidbits of newspaper things or oral histories. I would love to go see what that was like, you know, in their glory, you know, in their glamour. Anyway, I'd like to see. Uh, I, I feel like that's a music that is not, the, I feel like the essence of what those performers had with their audiences is not captured on the recording. The recording's like one thing, but so. I'd be in the front row with you. <laughs> when you find your time machine to go back to see the Prince concert, call me. Me too. Yes, that one. <laughs> Wait, have you, did you see him? Not live. Oh. That's one of my regrets too. That's one oh. of my regrets. And even when I was a student in college, I was in Ohio, and that was when he was emerging in the Midwest. And it used to be considered, you know, you were of a, a certain mindset to go see a Prince show in, in, in those days. <laughs> there was a Michael Jackson camp, and there was a Prince camp. And the Michael Jackson camp was starting, you know, there were some people slowly going into the Prince camp from there. So, um, yes, I do have those regrets, but I don't regret having to listen to the early days of his music when the records were starting to come out. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate. <laughs> My question relates to time capsules. Mm -hmm. So what three items would you put in a time capsule that reflect your life and the times you've lived through? All right. So I have to admit, I knew this question was coming at me. Because if I just if I hadn't known, I would just be dumbstruck. So I thought about it a little bit, and I chose a desktop computer. I I'm I went to college with a typewriter, and when I graduated, I didn't have a PC, but people were getting PCs. Like I kind of threw my typewriter out, 
And that happened in those four years. And so I feel like I was literally on the, like the edge of all of that. It happened, you know, when I was in college. So that's powerful in my life. A lot of other people's right. I have a pair of running shoes. So I've been running for a very long time, off and on when I can, you know, even as my knees age. And I was thinking I wanted something like to reflect like the political times that I live in. And I was thinking the other day, I, I have um, an I believe Anita button. Oh. <laughs> I don't know where I got it. At some point, I brought it in to show my students. Um, and that's Anita Hill, right? That's Anita Hill. Yeah. Okay. Another and, Beacon author, too. Yeah. And I so that I thought, oh, I'll just use that as my because I was thinking women have been I feel like I've been, you know, my lifetime, I'm, I'm 57, you know, women have been fighting um, political fights for sexual autonomy, for the right to be believed, for freedom from sexual violence, etc. So I thought that button would be a good, you know, that defines my lifetime, you know, something in my lifetime that I'd stick in the capsule. And then the people in the capsule would have a hard time figuring out what that sign, what that button meant. <laughs> So I think that's two. You've got one to go. No, oh, I have a pair of running shoes. Three shoes. Yeah. <laughs> running shoes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Gail, for joining us on this podcast for our talk about Elvis, the movie Elvis by Baz Luhrmann, which is nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Austin Butler. Thank you so much. It's been such fun. We invite our audience to share this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters with someone you know who would enjoy the conversation. Subscribe to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters and enjoy past episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Visit our website at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters for more information and where you can purchase copies of Shout, Sister Shout, The Untold Story of Rock and Roll Trailblazer, Sister Rosetta Tharp by Gail Wald, and other titles related to the podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. You can write us at podcast at michonbostongroup.com. Like and share historical drama with the Boston Sisters on your social media. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who binge on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.